Do you mind if I ask you a personal question? No, not at all. Well, forgive me for being so inquisitive. But during the past few weeks, I've wondered whether you might be having some second thoughts about the mission. How do you mean? Well, it's rather difficult to define. Perhaps I'm just projecting my own concern about it. I know I've never completely freed myself of the suspicion that there are some extremely odd things about this mission. I'm sure you'll agree there's some truth in what I say. Well, I don't know. That's a rather difficult question to answer. You don't mind talking about it, do you, Dave? From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. Welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today, and boasting a perfect operational record, is my lovely wife, Nakia, also known as The Unenthusiastic Critic. Hello, Michael. Does that sound like how? Was that a good how? I was going to say that you were refusing to open the pod bay doors, but I felt like in this context that had a weird sexual connotation that it was probably best if we avoided <laughs> It's always best to ask, though, if, if they want to open the pod bay doors. Don't assume that the pod bay doors are open. Always ask. <laughs> On today's episode, Nikki and I are journeying beyond the stars with Stanley Kubrick, Hal, and the crew of the Discovery for the 1968 sci-fi masterpiece 2001, A Space Odyssey. Nikia, let's just jump right into it this week. And I have no idea how this is going to go, <laughs> because you and I, for once, are in almost the same place in relation to this movie. Okay. You have never seen it. Right. I saw it when I was about 12 years old. That seems young. Though I would love to pretend that I was a sophisticated cinephile at 12. I saw your haircut. No. <sighs> that was hurtful. There's no <laughs> need to bring that up. Uh, the truth is that at that age, I probably had very different expectations for what science fiction was going to be. Thinking more Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> so, in short, I thought it was just about the most boring thing I had ever seen. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing. I haven't really watched it since then. <laughs> and I realize that, you know, this is a shameful admission. This pretty much destroys any claim I have to being a... Cinephile. A cinephile, a film critic. Yeah. I just, you know, I kept meaning to revisit it, and I just never felt like it. <laughs> and I think I think the film's oversized reputation mm-hmm. was probably part of that, because it just seemed daunting. Sure. On the latest sight and sound poll of the greatest films of all time, 2001 sits at number six on the critics' poll. And in the director's poll, it's named as the second greatest movie of all time. Behind... Uh, behind something you've never heard of. Really? <laughs> uh, it's uh, Yasuhiro Ozu's Tokyo Story. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Which I have never seen. It's actually on my list for the my the series I do on the blog, The Independent Study in World Cinema. Uh, at the rate I'm doing that, I should get to that in about three years. Okay. Let me know. I will watch it with you. <laughs> 
Uh, Roger Ebert named 2001 as one of his 10 favorite movies of all time, and he wrote about the film like four or five times over the course of his career, and I think liking it better every time he wrote about it. Hmm. He was once asked which films would still be familiar to audiences 200 years from now, and he said 2001, The Wizard of Oz, Casablanca, and Star Wars were his first choices. A lot of white people, (laughs) (laughs) but okay. Uh, Steven Spielberg called 2001 the Big Bang for his entire generation of filmmakers. That makes sense. There have been just an absurd number of books written about the movie, and there are endless websites dedicated to it. There's just an obsessive amount of stuff (laughs) out there about this movie. Mm -hmm. And that kind of made me feel like just never venturing into it. I mean, that's fair. I mean, it is a piece of art in in the sense that I think people bring a lot to it. Because Mm -hmm. from what I understand, there isn't really a narrative. Well, there is a narrative. And the narrative is actually, on one level, fairly simple. Okay. Like, and we could talk, I don't want to do it before we watch the movie. But afterwards, Kubrick was once asked the plot of the movie. And he just, like, summarized it in, like, a quick (laughs) paragraph. And he's like, this is what happens. (laughs) And And everybody else that takes 6,000 pages. On that level, it's simple. Mm -hmm. But then, yes, there are interpretations of what it all means, and there are Freudian interpretations, and Homeric interpretations, Mm -hmm. and Nietzschean interpretations, Mm -hmm. and all of these things that, you know, people get way into trying to figure out what this movie is trying to say, and all of that. Right. And I, I also think... It's it's one of those films that if you dare to say you don't like it, people are going to tell you you just don't, you don't understand. Know film, it. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. And again, that just puts me off, frankly. Well, I believe you said that to me a number of times. Well, <laughs> so it's interesting that now that the shoes on the other foot, that's just a ridiculous critique. Now, okay, that's I guess that's fair. <laughs> But in fact, in those cases, you actually did not get the movies in question. Okay, sure. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so this month is the 50th anniversary of the movie. Okay. Uh, we're actually a couple weeks late. It was released April 3rd, 1968. But the anniversary, it just, it seemed like it was a good time for me to finally revisit the film. And watching it with you, it felt like the perfect way to do that. And I want to go into this giving us permission to not like it. I think we're going to like it. Why would you assume that? You don't like anything. First of all, I do like some things. And I, I tend to like the Kubrick I've seen, I have enjoyed. Okay, so what Kubrick have you seen? I have seen uh, The Shining. Mm-hmm. I have seen Eyes Wide Shut, which, though very just sort of a weird vanity project for Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman's relationship, is I think still an interesting <laughs> movie and visually interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have seen Clockwork Orange. Okay. And I, I've liked all, I mean, Clockwork Orange is one of those movies that is like, I can never watch that again and be fine with my life. Um, but Because it is, it's such a happy film? Because it's such a cheery movie. Um, <laughs> but it is an amazingly well done movie, a very mm-hmm. smart movie. So, yeah, I mean, I don't expect to dislike Kubrick. And 2001 is the film that sort of set the bar for science fiction films. And you are a fan of science fiction films, so I would imagine you would appreciate the sort of originator of a lot of these ideas. Are you actually encouraging me to I, go I'm into a movie with an open mind yes, now? Yes, I'm encouraging you to this go into it with an open mind. I saw, I read black something. Black is white, up is down, dogs right. and cats living together. It's madness. I was reading, there's an article, I think, in Vanity Fair about the 50th anniversary, and they called it technopoetic. So, I mean, mm. how could you not like something called technopoetic? <laughs> 
Well, you are actually, it's it's entirely possible you may like this more than I do, because you are a bigger fan of Terrence Malick than I am. I, am. I do like those sort of visual, moody sort mm-hmm. of movies, quiet films. Yeah, so I mean, I, I'm probably predisposed to, to like it. I mean, it's definitely a, a delicate line between it being enjoyable and then veering over into just pretension. and Right. So, but again, I trust Kubrick. But also, one of my, I like, uh, I like uh, Duncan Jones's Moon, which mm-hmm. starred... Um, Sam Rockwell. Yes, yeah, Sam Rockwell, who I liked before, that whole third, three billboards nonsense. <laughs> um, <laughs> you can't really blame Sam Rockwell. I don't blame Sam Rockwell, but if he was going to win an Oscar, I would have preferred he won it for Moon. Um, but it's... It sort of takes a lot of that sort of aesthetic language from 2001, mm-hmm. sort of austere space station kind of thing, the solitary man within the space station. Mm-hmm. There is um, an AI presence, I believe, named Gertie, voiced by, unfortunately, Kevin Spacey. So I really like Moon, but Moon definitely had a very clear narrative structure. Right. So, I mean, I, I, I think that there will at least be aspects of 2001 that I enjoy if I don't enjoy it as a, a whole. So what do you actually know about this movie going into it? Um, I have images, mm-hmm. which I think is appropriate for this film. So I have the image of the apes surrounding the obelisk. Okay. Um, I have images of the astronaut, I don't know his name, in the, you know, the sort of stark white corridor. Uh-huh. I have images of the astronaut, I think he's in a shuttle, and there's like lights okay. going past yeah. him. Um, so that's, I have just like snippets of images and of course, how, okay. And that's pretty much all I know. Okay. Supposedly. And again, I don't know who did actually did the math on this. This is, there are probably more references to Kubrick in the Simpsons than to any other director. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I guess that makes sense. If we're talking like visual sort of gags, it would be Kubrick. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, all of this stuff has just sort of permeated the Mm -hmm. culture. That's, I think... I think I knew about Hal and that part of it before I actually saw the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I don't even know where I picked that up, but it was just floating around that people were making Hal jokes. <laughs> right. All right. Well, let's talk about Kubrick a little bit. Okay. So he was he was originally a professional photographer. He worked for Look Magazine and various other magazines in the 40s. And you can definitely see that in his in his style. Mm-hmm. He began making short films in the early 50s and released his first independent feature, Fear and Desire, in 1953. And a few years later, he was in Hollywood and beginning what was really a string of an almost unsurpassed string of movies, beginning with The Killing in 1956 and through Paths of Glory, Spartacus, Lolita, uh, and then Dr. Strangelove in 64 was really kind of his his big hit and really him coming into his own mm-hmm. as, a, as a filmmaker. And then 2001 in 1968, which, as we will discuss after we watch it, was not a critical hit initially. People honestly did not know what to make of it, and a lot of people did not like it. Because <laughs> it was quiet and, we'll, and long. We'll go over that afterwards. <laughs> Um, and then after that, after 2001, he made Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, The Shining, Full Metal Jacket, and Eyes Wide Shut. Not a bad career. Not a bad career at all. Uh, he was nominated for Best Director four times, but never won. His only Oscar, in fact, is for the visual effects in 2001. Mm-hmm. Proving, once again, that the Oscars don't really matter and <laughs> are actually not any kind of mark of success. Right. He was a notorious perfectionist. 
and obsessively controlling about his films. I think every actor who ever worked with him complained about having to do the same scene 50 times in a (laughs) row until Kubrick got what he wanted. Um, And we'll talk a a little bit more about the making of this movie after we watch it. I don't think we need to do it up front. So what are you expecting from this experience? I mean, it's Kubrick, so I'm expecting amazing visuals. I'm expecting... What I've heard is that the technology in the film, it has sort of withstood the test of time, that it look, it makes sense if we look at some of the technology that's around today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't look, you know, like hokey or dated in any way that um, some earlier sci-fi films sort of suffered from when they tried to sort of foresee what technology and AI would look like in the future. So I'm expecting that to be amazing. Um, and in fact, it may it probably influenced right. the development of the technology. Right. He hired some like NASA consultants to come in and mm-hmm. make everything authentic. Mm-hmm. But I, my guess would be that it also went the other way. That this after this movie came out, that it influenced that looked cool. Let's make what that. the space program was <laughs> right. going to look like right. going forward. Right? Yeah, I'm hoping not to be bored. Yeah, I mean, again, it's similar to the director like Terrence Malick, for example. Um, what's that one called? Tree of Life. Right, Tree of Life. There are segments of that <laughs> where I just feel like if we could just take this piece out, I'd really enjoy it much more. So, you know, the apes around the obelisk thing, I have a feeling that I'm going to have less patience for that because I feel like it's just, it's this sort of unnecessarily ponderous moment about like the evolution of man or something. So it's just like, you know, you're trying to make a big statement and I'm just not interested in going on this journey with you. So there are possibly going to be points where I'm just going to be like, okay, I'm tapping out. Yeah. See, that's what, that's what I'm worried about too. And like, again, with tree of life, I love the parts that are about the family family. in that movie. And I have much less patience for the cosmic (laughs) God. (laughs) dinosaur Sean Penn portion of the Sean Penn part can definitely go. And I'm worried that the ratio here is going to be about 80-20. Yeah. I really don't. It's I'm really possible. not sure, but I'm, I'm, I'm honestly trying to go into it <laughs> with an open mind, but this is one case where I may be the unenthusiastic one this week. We can be unenthusiastic together. <laughs> um, Alright, well let's, uh, let's, I guess, just go watch the movie and let, maybe we can leave on this this quote from Stanley Kubrick about the movie, and maybe that'll help guide us into it. He said, 2001 is basically a visual, nonverbal experience. Mm-hmm. It avoids intellectual verbalization and reaches the viewer's subconscious in a way that is essentially poetic and philosophic. The film thus becomes a subjective experience which hits the viewer at an inner level of consciousness, just as music does or painting. Should we be high? <laughs> I feel like that's encouraging. That is a point that many critics made when this film came out. And we will discuss that. Once you get high and listen to the wall and watch Mm -hmm. 2001, I think think that's what this is supposed to be. Do we have the wall? I don't think we have the wall. Dark side of the moon. Exactly. mm -hmm. Play it backwards or something. I just, okay, sure. All right. On that note, let's go watch 2001. Okay. The 9000 series is the most reliable computer ever made. We are all foolproof and incapable of error. Open the pod bay doors, Hal.
I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. break Nikki and I watched 2001 a space odyssey and I feel like I should say here at the top you know through the magic of podcasting sometimes we lie about the time that passes between the preliminary conversation and the post conversation sometimes we watch the movie and then we talk about it the next day or whatever here we really are going into it just about an hour after we watch the movie so neither of us have had a lot of time for deep reflection, which I think is the best way to talk about this movie. Without deep reflection? Yes. I don't, <laughs> I don't. I have no desire to reflect deeply. Okay. Nakia, what did you think of 2001? She's reflecting deeply. <laughs> I think I liked it. I liked it. Um, there were definitely some moments where it felt slow. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, but I will just chalk that up to it being a meditative film. Um, <laughs> no, but I mean visually and sonically, it's mm-hmm. it's an it's an amazing film. It's just obviously a technically brilliant achievement. Um, yeah, I liked it. It it really is stunning just mm-hmm. how good the film looks. And it's not that it looks good for the time. Right. No, it, it just, looks, just good. looks good. Yeah. And I don't know how, I don't know what remastered print we were, I mean, we just, we rented it off on demand, but it looked way better than I was expecting it to look. Mm-hmm. So I was both blown away and bored to death simultaneously, <laughs> if that is possible. Because I have enough of that film nerd in me Mm -hmm. that I'm just sitting there, you know. In awe. Practically coming at some of the shots on the screen. There's a a Twitter account I follow. I think it's related to the website Film School Rejects. But the Twitter account is called One Perfect Shot. Mm -hmm. And that's what they do is they post perfect shots from movies. Right. And I remember a few weeks ago, they were posting from 2001, and they posted a bunch of shots. But you could pick there so any many, shot yeah. from this movie, and it's just a perfect shot. You could just do the like, whole Like, you could just frame <laughs> any still from this movie and put yeah. it on your wall. Yeah. But it is slow. <laughs> it is. But maybe that's good. Maybe we have just gotten too accustomed to sort of being spoon-fed narrative mm-hmm. and then also just expecting sort of big moments. Right. You sort of expect a natural progression of, you know, first act, second act, third act. And so we have mm-hmm. this sort of idea in our head about how the action is going to go and, and, you know, where the big moments are going to land. And this sort of just throws all of that out of the window. And I, I will fully cop to being a 
narrative guy. Mm-hmm. I like story. I like dialogue. Character. I like. I mean, I'm a writer fundamentally. Mm-hmm. I was a lit major. Like that's what I love. Mm-hmm. And so the purely visual is harder for me to relate to. Right. It's it's more likely always to leave me impressed, but a little cold. Right. I mean, I definitely think with 2001, I think to f- sort of fully appreciate it, you have to let that go. It's an appre- it's it's an appreciation of yes, the visual, but then you also have to be the type of person that enjoys sort of turning more abstract films over in your mind and sort of thinking through the themes and bringing your own interpretations to it because that's the uh, I mean, that's really the only other piece. There's really no story. I mean, there is a story, but it's 2001 can't be dissected in the same way that more conventionally narrative films can. So it's, you come for the visuals and for the sort of opportunity to have a philosophy discussion about, you know, these <laughs> themes. And that's sort of what Okay, well, for. we'll get to the philosophy discussion, which is the part I think I'm more skeptical about. But let's, <laughs> in, in the beginning, like for the first 10 minutes, 20 minutes of this film, I almost had to remind myself that I wasn't watching... What is that nature documentary series that you watch? Planet the British Earth. Planet Earth. <laughs> <laughs> well, you didn't hear the awesome voice of, uh, what's its name? Uh, David Attenborough. David Attenborough, yeah. right. <laughs> yes, if David Attenborough had been narrating this, <laughs> I would have thought I was watching Planet Earth. And that's not a slam, because that series is gorgeous. Right, the the but... shots of the African Serengeti are amazing, and you get that, you know, these beautiful red sky. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, those are beautiful shots. Um yeah, I mean, should we just go sort of through the scenes, or? Well, I thought we would start. Let's agree on what the story is first. I'd, I'd like okay. to hear you summarize what actually happens in this movie briefly. Uh, briefly, and then we'll we'll kind of compare it to what Kubrick said happens in the movie, mm-hmm. which I don't consider any more definitive than what you say. It's isn't it? A lot of people who discuss this will talk about. Kubrick said in interviews this, or Arthur C. Clarke, the writer of the novel, Mm -hmm. in the novel it explains this. Fuck all that shit. It's either in the movie or it's not in the movie, so let's talk about the movie. Uh, The movie is about... um, I I think it's about the evolution of man. Okay. Okay. (laughs) It's like your summarized Proust (laughs) competition entry from last week. Cookies and shadows. Um... Yes, so it's done in, is it three acts? Uh, basically, basically, yes. I would say it's four. It's, we have, so there's the, the prehistoric Man. stuff. Right. There's Haywood Floyd arriving at the space station mm-hmm. and briefing his fellow people mm-hmm. about what's happening. And then going to the moon and they find the monolith. Right. And that's sort of a chapter break there. Right. And then we pick up on the Discovery with Dave and Frank, the right. two astronauts, Hitting and Hal. Right. And that's sort of the Hal section of the movie. Right. And then we have the last segment <laughs> of the movie, which right. is the one that's going to take the most unpacking. Yes. Um, yes. Some pretty sure it's about the evolution of man. Right. <laughs> um, and the the monolith sort of serves as a marker throughout, a marker for sort of moments of evolution. So the apes evolving into man uh, and man's use of technology. And Mm -hmm. then we have 
sort of the evolution of technology sort of superseding man with Hal. Okay. And then the final sequence, which is about rebirth of man, <laughs> uh-huh. I'm assuming, into some sort of higher man, higher form of man, possibly some sort of space child. <laughs> Star uh, child is sure. how that is referred okay. to. In- Star child. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess that's what it's about. Okay, I mean, I think that's that's the base. That's essentially the agreed upon. Okay. Narrative. I think there's quibbling about sort of what the monoliths are mm-hmm. and what they represent. Mm-hmm. Um, so Kubrick said the plot was very simple. <laughs> he said you begin with an artifact left on Earth four million years ago by extraterrestrial explorers who observed the behavior of the man apes of the time and decided to influence their evolutionary progression. Then you have the second artifact buried deep on the lunar surface and programmed a signal word of man's first baby steps into the universe. A kind of cosmic burglar alarm. And finally, there's a third artifact placed in orbit around Jupiter and waiting for the time when man has reached the outer rim of his own solar system. And then he goes on to talk about what happens when Dave encounters that. Okay. Which we'll, we'll get to. Okay. But yeah, so that's... He, he saw the plot as very simple and very clear. Sure. I'm not sure it's that clear, but okay, fine. <laughs> All right, so let's let's talk about that first sequence. Okay. Which you had said you thought you were going to be less patient with that part. I actually thought that was one of my favorite parts of the movie. I don't know that it was one of my favorites, but it didn't bother me as much as I thought it was going to bother me. Or at least I didn't find it as pretentious as I thought it was going to be. I mean, I think first we should mention that the movie opens on just a black screen. Yeah. Yeah. And this sort of use of this sort of cacophonous discordant tones are are playing. Um, And the black screen is there for... Probably like three minutes or it's, so. It's got to be minutes. at least, it's, it seemed like nine minutes, so let's say, sure, it's two or three minutes of just black screen with these tones. They were almost like Gregorian it. chants, the mm-hmm. way that it sounded. So it, it almost gets you in, into this sort of spiritual meditative space, um, I felt. Did, really? Did you feel that? I think so. Because <laughs> usually you're the one that hates shit like that. You hate overtures, you hate intermissions. When it's in Gone with the Wind, yes. that's what, Or Sound of Music, then yes. But this, I felt like it set it sort of set the mood. I think I was just in a crappy mood today, because I was just like, fucking get on with it, Stanley. And then you, it opens with that sort of beautiful shot of that's the sun, the shot. earth, and the moon. And then you have Strauss's... We're, we're on the moon. We're right. sort of at, behind the moon. Right. And then we see the earth rise so above the moon. The horizon. And then we see the sun rise beyond right. the earth. And, and they're all a, lined up perfectly. It's a great shot. And Strauss's uh, Zarathustra? How do you say yeah. it? <laughs> also Sprach Zarathustra. There you go. Yeah. Do it's, I speak German? No. You know. Uh, is sort of is playing over it, over the scene. And it's, it is, it's a very powerful use of that piece of music. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is, again, something that after this movie has been... Used to death. Used to yeah. death yeah. and, you know, mocked and right. parodied. Right. Its use in this movie has been, you know... Right. Riffed on <laughs> by everyone in the known universe. <laughs> Those five tones that, right. you know, revealing something majestic. <laughs> And then we open on the African Serengeti. Right. Uh, and the apes. Right. Who are initially minding their own business, eating vegetation. Mm-hmm. Fighting the other, I don't know what those other animals are. They're Yeah, they're almost like anteaters, but they're not. Yeah. I don't know what they are either. Um, 
But anyway, yes, they're <laughs> all grazing together. Right. And... and then they wake up one day and there is the monolith. Yes. Well, first they get, we see them get attacked by like a, a leopard. A cheetah, yeah. A cheetah. So it reinforces that idea that, that they are sort of, they're still prey mm-hmm. at this point. Mm-hmm. They're not the predators yet. Mm-hmm. And then, yes, the monolith suddenly appears. The monolith appears, and that same sort of discordant chanting that we heard mm-hmm. at the beginning of the film comes back, and all of the apes are, you know, freaking out, as they rightly should. Right. Uh, and it's just this black, linear structure. Right. It's all smooth lines. Right. and Amongst this imperfect natural environment. Right. Um, and they initially sort of fear touching it, and then they become enchanted with it, and... I've read that some people have interpreted that moment as a sort of moment of spiritual transcendence. And I've seen comparisons to the Sistine Chapel, where man reaches out his finger to God and right, so it's a sort of sp- right. spiritual moment. Right. And I think there's, I mean, that, that makes sense because it's, this is obviously a made thing. Right. This is not a natural occurrence with its straight lines and its smooth surface, and they seem to realize that. If it, if it's a made thing, then there's a maker, there's right. a creator, right? Um, and I think I think there's a couple different ways to interpret what happens next. It's, I mean, I think the sci-fi explanation is that this monolith somehow imbued them with intelligence, imbued, right? right. <laughs> like downloads into their heads mm-hmm. the idea to make tools, right? But I think you could also look at it more naturally and just say that. Again, the fact that this is a made thing, that this is a artificial thing, puts the concept into their heads of creating things, of mm. making things. Mm-hmm. So it's more an inspiration. Right. More mm. an inspiration than a direct magical leap in evolution. Right. right. Yeah. Um, but however it happens, one of them gets the idea to pick up a bone and start smashing things. it around. <laughs> Well, and, and I mean, the, that scene where the ape picks up the bone, it's very sort of primal mm-hmm. and brutal. And there seems to be this sort of comment about, you know, evolution sort of inherently brings with it destruction. Right. That That is somehow inherent in, in man. Yeah, because it, it is the first tool. Right. So it's technology, but mm-hmm. I mean, I think that theme is in the movie throughout that technology is can be used for both good and evil right. and that there's violence inherent in that. Right. So the first thing the apes use it for is hunting. Right. So now they're suddenly not eating plants anymore. Now they're eating meat. Yes. Because they've smashed the heads of those placid little anteater things that are wandering around. Red, red innards in their hands. Yes. But then... <laughs> They Shit decide gets dark. <laughs> it's time to challenge the other tribe of apes yes. for the waterhole. Mm-hmm. And they beat an ape to death yes, they with do. their bones. Which is, I mean, this is Cain and Abel, man. <laughs> this is the, the first murder is what we're witnessing there. The birth of war. Yes. The birth of prejudice. The birth of hatred. It's a fantastic sequence. It and is. it's absolutely iconic. I mean, that scene where he first picks up the bone and is like figuring out mm-hmm. what he can do with it. And he starts just waving it around. And he starts smashing bones and he notices the bones break. And then he just brings it down on the skull of that right. dead animal and smashes it. And we get a couple of inner cuts of the live animals. Right. And Falling. like him like making the connection like right. I can use this. To kill things. Right. 
this realization like of power. It's a brilliant sequence. Yeah. And then it ends with that famous match cut where he right. throws the bone up in the air and it's spinning that it cuts to the... The Pan Am shuttle. Right, in space. So no, that's a great shot. That's, you know, an eight million year smash cut <laughs> to the evolution of technology. And apparently, from what I've read, there was originally going to be more blatant, I would say, heavy-handedness. Mm-hmm. That, like, those were supposed to be, like, weapon satellites in space. And okay. that there was going to be more about weaponizing space and right. stuff like that. And Kubrick decided to take it out. Mm-hmm. He said, we don't need it. And it's... And I think that was a good call. I think that could have gone... Trust your audience. ...really heavy-handed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I think that was a good decision. Okay, so now we're on the space station. Right, and we have the Blue Danube playing, which uh-huh. is just a beautiful sequence of zero gravity, and and it's like a waltz in space. So let's talk about the music a little bit. Um Kubrick commissioned a composer named Alex North to do a traditional movie score Mm -hmm. for this film. Mm -hmm. And then at some point he decided to throw it out. (laughs) And apparently like he had been using these classical pieces as placeholders when he was editing the film Mm -hmm. um, and had planned to put the new score in and he decided he liked them. And he decided he wanted to keep them. And again, I don't have confirmation on this, but something I read said that the composer found that out when he went to see the film. Which oh, must no. Have been a huge disappointment. That's a shitty way to find out you didn't get the job. Yeah. You could have dropped him a note. <laughs> <laughs> Your stuff was awesome, but yeah. we're going a different we're way. Going a different way. <laughs> but yeah, the, the use of music is, is just genius in yeah. this movie. Yeah. Then we get a lot of product placement. We do. We're at the Hilton Space Station, <laughs> yeah. which I must say is I'm in love with. I felt there. So it's this sort of very sterile white space. And then you have these bold red modern chairs that almost look like they're they're sort of rounded. Um, you they, just like the chairs. I love the chairs because they almost look like red blood cells, <laughs> like flowing through the space. Oh, okay. Um, so they, I looked it up because I was like, oh, chairs. Uh, <laughs> Where can I get that chair? <laughs> but they are the, and I'm probably butchering this, the Jin Chair, D-J-I-N-N, by Olivier Morgier, probably butchering his name. Um, and they were designed in 1965. And I could buy them, or one, for a little over $2,000. Oh, okay. So... Well, let's <laughs> certainly do that. And I think we really need, like, six of them. I mean, you would need, to, you, to, you can't just have one. Right. You need... At least two to sort of... Create a little seating area. (laughs) Kubrick would appreciate the symmetry. Um, And then there's also... When he sits down with his sort of fellow space colleagues, uh, they're sitting at a Saarinen table. So the whole Mm -hmm. design of that space, I thought, was beautiful. And then when he goes to the conference, whatever, the sort of meeting that he's holding in the conference room, Mm -hmm. um, when they are talking about, you know, what's going on at Clavius, is that the name of the... That's right. That's the area. That's yeah. like I think that's I think there's a Clavius crater on the mm-hmm. moon. So that's the area of the moon where the the monolith was discovered. Yeah. So that conference room, again, you were talking about sort of you know perfect shots. It's just such a beautifully set up shot because we the camera sort of stationed at the back of the room, and you have this everything is sort of perfect angled and straight lines yeah. and parallel lines. I just sort of love the composition of that shot, and it's very simple. Yeah, the symmetry of it is yeah. amazing, and it's 
And I don't, I'm not an expert on cinematography, but I know it's what, what Kubrick is known for is this, uh, I think it's like one point perspective. Right. The lines like, drawn to, right. yeah. So you have the, the vanishing point right down the center mm-hmm. of the screen. And that, that scene is good because it's like the camera is set way at the forefront of the frame and perfectly centered. Yeah. And then it pivots a couple of times to pick up characters moving. And then it just kind of comes back and rests back at that center right. position again. Right. And it's also, I mean, I know that the thing about the dialogue in this film, I would say, except for the how portion, is it's almost inconsequential. It's totally banal. Yeah. You know, the conversation is obviously important. Like, they are, there's this huge, like, cover-up of what's actually going on on Clavius and... But it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter to the story. So you really are just sort of sitting there looking at the scene and picking up the little details, little visual cues in the scene. Right. The, the characters are completely boring. Right. They have no personality. The dialogue is, like you said, just it doesn't matter. Right. It's not. There's no content right. to it. There's no humor to it. There's no warmth to it. Right. So I think I think we should talk later about sort of philosophically, whether that's part of what mm. this movie is trying to say about human beings and technology and all of that. But I think just from a technical standpoint, to me, it just feels like it's part of Kubrick's, this is a visual movie right. thing. Right. So it's like, the di- you know, he maybe he would have made this as a silent movie if he could have gotten away with it. Mm-hmm. But it is basically a silent movie. You yeah. can take all the dialogue out. And I saw an interview with him where he said something about seeing the experience of seeing his previous movie dr strangelove dubbed into another language Hmm. and he said it completely changed the movie because that was a very talk heavy movie it depended on the accents of the characters and their personalities and all of that and so i wonder if when he made this one he didn't want to make it kind of universal like you could dub this into any language and it's not going to change a thing because there's no um there's no personality or and really very little content to mm-hmm. any of the dialogue, so mm-hmm. it is just kind of a universal language. Yeah. Oh, I started to talk about the uh, the product placement, which apparently that is what this was. Is that you know he went to various corporations and got them to agree to give him stuff. And, nice. Um, so yes, we have the shuttle is a Pan Am shuttle right. that takes him to the space station. There's a Hilton there, right? Which reminded me of that scene. I don't know if you remember in Mad Men, there was a scene where Conrad Hilton. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when it was supposed to be a scene illustrating how he was crazy, <laughs> was like telling Don he wanted an ad showing a Hilton on the moon. I do remember that. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Don thought he was, you know, exaggerating, and then Hilton was like, "No, I want a Hilton on the moon." Um, and then there's like there's a Howard Johnson's right. lounge. There's Ma Bell picture telephones. And if you look very closely, I caught it a couple of places. There's IBM on a couple of the computer things. Mm -hmm. IBM apparently had their product placement reduced when they figured out the whole whole HAL (laughs) portion of the movie. They decided they maybe did not want their logo associated too closely with HAL. By IBM, our computers won't kill you. Yeah, that's not a good association. No. And in fact, there is a theory that is that the author completely discounts because Hal is the three letters are one letter off from IBM. <laughs> so, but Arthur, Arthur C. Clarke says no, that's not. I just made up the it name. It was Hal. just Hal. Yeah. 
people can find a conspiracy almost everywhere. Yes. And they seem to love to do it with Kubrick movies. There's that whole, what is it, Room 237? Is that the yeah. name of that documentary about the Shining conspiracy theories? Yeah. I mean, he leaves himself open to that. <laughs> he really does. If you invite obsessives, that's what you get. <laughs> they will take the opportunity. Yeah. But the you mentioned before the technology crazy. It's insanely accurate. Skyping. We got skyping. We've got the TV screens on the back of airplane seats like that. It's one of those that you look at it and you're like, oh right, this came out before this right. were. None thing. of this was real. <laughs> before. <laughs> and even just like I mean, this was a year before we landed on the moon. Right. So nobody knew exactly what that was gonna look like. I mean the Apollo program was underway and mm-hmm. we'd had missions, but it really is hard to remember that this movie came out in 1968. Yeah. It's kind of stunning. Yeah. Uh, all right. So where are we? So we see the monolith for the second time on the moon. Or a different monolith. Or Okay. Sure. Or a different <laughs> monolith. I count four in this movie. Three. There's at least three and maybe four. But hmm. Okay. Um, but yes, the one on the moon that had been buried, they discovered it. It right. had been buried on the moon. And I love that we get, there's a scene that ex- almost exactly parallels that scene with the, the apes, apes gathered around right. it, reaching out and touching mm-hmm. it. The astronaut mm-hmm. runs his hand down the smooth surface of it. Yeah. But yes, it is sending a signal, apparently, towards Jupiter. So that is, according to Kubrick, it, what that is, is an alarm that says, okay, human beings have made it this far off their own right. planet. They're starting to go out into the world. Here they come. Right. It's an early warning system. Okay, but then, yes, we are uh, now... 18 months later, mission to Jupiter. And we are there with our heroes. And arguably the most compelling character, Hal. (laughs) Easily the most compelling (laughs) character. The most human character. (laughs) Frankly, the most sympathetic character. He is really sympathetic. And I'm calling him a he. Well, he has a male voice. I think we can gender Hal. Okay, it's not a man. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I think that the Jupiter, the mission to Jupiter section is where we see some of the most impressive in terms of visual effects in the entire film. Yes. Um, Just that opening shot where you have, I don't know if it's Dave or... Frank is the other one, right? I don't, I can't remember if it's Dave or Frank, but they're jogging through the space station. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's the circle. Yeah. The whole wheel. And as it's turning, he's he's running. I think I said to you, I had to like remind myself, like this was all pre-computer effects, pre-digital effects. Like this is all practical effects. And I was like, I don't know how the fuck they did this. It's seamless. And I looked it up afterwards. And how they did it is they built what was basically a 30-ton Ferris wheel. You know, Mm -hmm. all the couches and things are, like, nailed to the inside edge of the wheel, Mm -hmm. and it could turn. So as it turned, the actor, the actor's always at the bottom of it, but the set is turning, and he's jogging around him. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's an amazing shot. It's, it's, It's so well done. And there are still other scenes in there where I don't know how they did it earlier. It's, I think that's the plane to the moon. Where the stewardess oh. like completely change it's like an Escher drawing. Yeah. She completely changes the direction she, like, she's walking. So she walks up the right. wall <laughs> and then goes sideways into give the pilots their food. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. But yeah, so we're on we're on the discovery. This is 
I remember watching this as a kid, and this was the part of the movie I liked. Yeah. Because it is the most narratively... Mm-hmm. It could be a short story in and of itself. Right. Yeah. Right. A lot, a lot of people would have made this just the movie. Right. And it would have been a little horror movie about two guys and their evil computer. Mm-hmm. It would have been, you know, well, Alien was still 10 years away, but it was like Alien with a computer. But yes, talk to me about Hal. Hal is troubled. <laughs> Hal is, you know, we are told many times that the Hal 9000 the Hal 9000 infallible, yep. never makes a mistake. No 9000 series has ever made a mistake. And this Hal is obviously, you know, got some bugs. <laughs> and he sends them out on a mission to fix some sort of part on the exterior of the the yeah. discovery, and they the communications the relay communication or something. Dis- he says is going to fail. It's going to fail. They go out and they get it. They come back and they say there's no evidence that this thing is going to fail. And Hal is basically saying, "Well, I'm right because I'm never wrong. So <laughs> right. must be human error. <laughs> must be human error." Um, and that you know plants a little seed of doubt in our astronauts. Who then go to try to have a secret conversation mm-hmm. outside of Hal's purview, though he's everywhere and everything, and didn't realize that Hal could read lips. Yeah, that was unfortunate. <laughs> so <laughs> Hal realizes that they are plotting against him yeah. and becomes very paranoid. Well, they're going to disconnect him. And becomes... You know, his self-preservation mode kicks in and he tries to save himself. So we've had, we've had early, er, before that, we've had a couple of interesting moments with Hal. There's, we see film of a TV interview. Right. Where the interviewer interviews Hal and then he's talking to the humans and he says, is Hal capable of emotion? Mm -hmm. The interviewer's like, I thought I detected like pride when he was talking to me. Yeah. And Dave says something like, well, he's programmed to sound like he has emotions, but whether he really does, I think there's no way for us to know. Right. And then a little later, Hal says to Dave, can I ask you a personal question? And initiates this little conversation. This is not something you want your computer to say to you. Right. And he says, I'm wondering if you've had any second thoughts about this mission. Maybe I'm just projecting my own concerns and doubts. And it's just a very weird moment where it's like something is going on here. And Dave is very wisely like, I'm not going to say anything in this moment because this feels wrong. Right. Yeah. So then, yes. So something is happening with Hal and Hal is not going to allow them to shut him off. No. He's going to murder them. A very rational response. Uh, sort of rational. I mean, self <laughs> in terms, self-preservation. In self-preservation, yes, that's a very rational response. Kill them before they kill you. <laughs> so he dispenses with Frank pretty quickly. Frank's outside in the pod, and then Frank leaves the pod. And the pod attacks Frank. And then suddenly the pod starts moving <laughs> when nobody's in it. And then Frank is floating off into space, yes. untethered. Which is a beautiful shot. It he, really he, is. He flo- him floating in the space is just a beautiful shot. Yeah. Very sad, but very beautiful. <laughs> and then Dave, perhaps unwisely, decides to go out and yeah. get Frank's body. Which, why? <laughs> you know, I mean, never I guess, leave a man behind. Sure, but, I mean, he's gone into the abyss. <laughs> Do not do that. Do not go out there. Do not leave Hal do not in fucking leave control Hal. of the ship. No. Right. So, yes, he goes to get the body of Frank, and 
comes back. Open the bay doors, Hal. <laughs> I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. <laughs> Why the fuck not, Hal? <laughs> Bitch, because I saw you talking shit about me. I can read lips, motherfucker. <laughs> You and I both know why I can't open these doors. <laughs> Let's stop playing games. This is why everyone who's, you know, super excited to have Alexa and Google Home. I know, right? Business. We are dying to have Hal run our homes. And I'm just like, no. <laughs> Absolutely. One, the government is listening to you. Two, that bitch is going to turn on you. <laughs> and do it in a really, like, passive-aggressive yes. way. Hal's all like... I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do, Dave. It's like a bitchy girlfriend. Exactly. You know what happened. I don't. Can you tell me what happened? Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? Dave, I really think I'm entitled to an answer to that question. This is why I don't even fuck with Siri. I don't do any of that. I don't do any of that. No. I'm going to fuck up on my own. You're not going to know. I don't need no help. That's okay. Nope. And then, when Dave finally manages to get back onto the space station, he he opens the door, and then he blows the explosive right. bolts on his pod and gets swept inside and closes the door. I mean, first of all, I would have expected that Hal had some way to fuck him up then, but apparently right. he didn't, because now Hal yeah. starts changing his tune. Yeah. Hal's all like, I'm feeling much better, Dave. <laughs> Everything's fine, Dave. <laughs> got it out of my system feeling much better now there's no need to do this dave i can see you're really very upset about this and then i mean it it is funny but then it gets really kind of sad Sad. very very sad very sad so dave goes into the sort of nerve center of hal Mm -hmm. starts unplugging shit it's just hal starts begging stop dave please stop i'm afraid dave i'm afraid Dave. i can feel it i'm losing my mind my mind is going dave and then he fucking sings daisy fucking song it's it's like watching or listening to like your grandmother with alzheimer's die it's just terrible it's terrible it really is kind of tragic it is it is even though he's obviously not a good machine not nice. That's a, that was that was horrifying. <laughs> that was a long death. And this is the thing. I mean, wh- what does it mean that this is the most sympathetic character in the movie? I mean, maybe he's making some sort of statement about AI and the sort of singularity idea, and mm-hmm. that, that there's no sort of the gap between human beings and what makes us human, and our consciousness is not as wide as we think it is. You know, once the machine becomes advanced enough. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was definitely the most sort of emotion we'd seen in the entire film. And I, I think there's like parallels with the whole sort of theistic. Yeah. Under, I mean, because Al is a creation of right. the humans. Right. Right. So this is his creator that he's begging with to let him live mm-hmm. and or earlier turning against. So, I mean, there is there's a lot of stuff going on here, whether it all ultimately makes any sense right. for people far more obsessive than I am to... <laughs> Ponder, I guess. <laughs> but that whole sequence is just like if I would rewatch that yeah. sequence yeah. right now. Yeah. I mean, and again, you have some really just powerful shots. That sequence where Dave blows the door open to the emergency hatch and it's totally silent and yeah. the door closes and the sort of sound. The use of in. silence is it's great, very powerful. And it's it's obviously authentic, but right. most movies did not do right. that. Like space is a vacuum, there's right. no sound. Exactly. Um and then when he goes into Hal's sort of nerve center, it's just it's all red and dark and it's just mm-hmm. 
there's mm-hmm. some beautiful, beautiful shots in that sequence. All right. So, but let's talk here about why Hal goes crazy. Okay. Do you know? Because I don't. I have, again, I have read explanations. I have read Arthur C. Clarke explain why Hal goes crazy, but I don't mm-hmm. think the movie really explains it. Um, I don't think it explains it, no. I mean, the assumption would be that sometimes technology fails. Okay, so just basic. Right. That's probably the, you know, the more... He had a short. Right, mundane answer. Just, <laughs> right. you know, sometimes shit gets fucked up. Um, he was created by man. Man makes mistakes. Mm-hmm. But there's probably some, you know, wonderfully philosophical reason as to why Hal malfunctioned. Maybe. The... The pedestrian explanation that, like, Clark gives is that the mission control, whoever was in charge of this, ultimately, that they hadn't told the crew what the real mission was, but they had told Hal. Right. Which put Hal in a position to lie to the crew and Mm -hmm. hide things from the crew, Mm -hmm. and that that was incompatible with his programming, and that's what drove him crazy. Sort of Asimov. So this creature of pure logic, you're asking it to lie and deceive, Mm -hmm. and it can't do that, and it goes crazy. Because there's no... Like, at first I thought, okay, so Mission Control has programmed Hal to do this in the case of certain things. But nothing happens that would jeopardize the mission. And if Hal's goal is to carry out the mission, killing all the human beings on board does not seem <laughs> right. to be a way to get there. So it does seem to be just pure insanity. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't know what it what it ultimately means, unless it is simply that, again, technology is both helpful and destructive. Right. And Hal sort of embodies both of those things by becoming infused with paranoia and distrust and emotions. I mean, right, but that's something that we infected it with, though, right? Like, if that was... Right, sure. So, then it becomes... I mean, I think... think about this way too fucking much now. Um, then it becomes... Technology is only, you know, quote-unquote good insofar as person or the people creating it are good. You know, this idea that technology, in a lot of ways to sort of reflect the blind spots of its creators. Mm-hmm. So take, for example, you know, the face recognition on the new phone. Right. And the problems that people of darker complexions have <laughs> with the phone recognizing their face. Right. So that's just the sort of inherent built-in bias. You can't even get the damn faucets in the I bathroom I can't even get the fucking faucets in the, sink to, in the bathroom sink to work because, you know, the light doesn't reflect right. the same way off of my skin. Right? So it, is, it's, it's like, it maybe wasn't something that we knew then, but it is, I think, it's something that we know now. Whether or not we actually sort of reckon with that is another discussion. But this idea that you, you can't advance yourself out of the sort of failings of man. That's interesting. So technology is not in itself an evolutionary leap. Right. Because human nature has not evolved. Right. Just the tools have evolved. Right. Okay. That's an interesting. I'll go with that. Total bullshit. But I don't know. (laughs) Hey. (laughs) As valid as any other theory, as far as I can tell. I guess another theory about this section, and I honestly just thought of this, though now it seems kind of obvious, is that this this middle section of the movie is not actually about human evolution at all. This is about Hal's evolution. Okay. So the moment where he gains 
consciousness, the singularity, as you called it, mm-hmm. is a comparable leap in evolution to the one that the apes make in the beginning of the movie. With the monolith. With the monolith. Right, right. Right. And I guess you could probably even stretch it out to a comparable situation where it's like, Hal becomes sentient because, as we discussed, this element of deceit, Mm -hmm. evil, if you will, was introduced into his programming. And then you have the apes, and I'm thinking this through, that they make this leap at the moment where they come into conflict with, like, this other group of apes. Right. Where it's about fighting over the water hole. Mm Mm-hmm. And they go from being prey to predator, and Hal goes from being a tool himself to becoming a sentient being, a predator, if you will. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know what to do with that. It's just a thought (laughs) I just had. I mean, I I think it's interesting to think of Hal having a sort of almost human-like evolution. Right. Um, It's all... And this is, again, like... (laughs) Bullshit sign flashing behind me as I say this. <laughs> like, if we want to do the, you know. Where did you get that? What? That bullshit sign. It I've comes never in seen handy, like, all the time. You... My fucking electricity bill is through the roof. Uh... <laughs> if only our listeners could see it. <laughs> okay. So, but it is very much, like, late night weed-induced conversation. Yeah. But this idea that... Introducing the lie to Hal is almost in line with, like, the original sin. Exactly. Right. Like, this is so fucking potty. I can't even (laughs) deal. (laughs) You know, man, it's like... so. It's it's like (laughs) a tree of knowledge. Take your ass to bed, dude. Um, Yeah, so this idea that that's the original sin. And so from there begins the sort of downfall of man. There begins the downfall of Hal. Um, and maybe that's why it resonates so deeply with us in comparison to the sort of human characters that don't really have arcs per se and don't uh-huh. really have, right? don't really um, display any real emotion, really. Um, and it, I guess it's also interesting because if you, if you view it that way, if you view this as Hal's, this section is about Hal's evolution, it's an evolutionary dead end. Right. Because they kill Hal, right, right at, at the moment he becomes an actual life form. Mm-hmm. Which, I have to say, Jean-Luc Picard aboard the Starship Enterprise <laughs> would never have allowed. That's Data would have made an argument that this was an autonomous life form, and no matter how dangerous it was, we can't kill it. It's against the Prime Directive. And then he would have and they just Earl shut Grey. They just shut him off. They did. They did just shut him off. Um... I mean, like, self-preservation is the first instinct right. of a life form, and that's right. the first thing Hal does. All, all he's doing is trying to save his own life. Right. And theoretically, the larger mission, but... Yeah, but he actually ends up jeopardizing the mission. <laughs> that, that argument doesn't really fly. Um, yeah, it is. It is interesting. It is a conversation that I think Pot would help a lot. Pot would help it a lot. Um, because then you start thinking about the errors that he makes. Right. And, like, it... And again, coming back to that original sin thing, and it's like, is is the ability to make errors part of Being what constitutes a life form? Right. There's, there's layers, man. So many layers. But, yeah, those were errors that humans introduced on R- purpose. 
right? Well, in, in a way, yes, because they told... They, they brought they, the lie to the Right, table. they asked him to lie to the humans. Possibly not knowing that that would drive him insane. Right. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, I think we have the thing where, at the beginning of the movie, we see the first tool invented by... I guess they weren't even humans then, but they were proto-humans. Sure. And then Hal is, like, the last tool. Used for murder. Well, yeah, both right. were used for murder. Right, right. But he's the last tool made by humans mm-hmm. before humans then take another... Mr. Star Child evolutionary. Right. Right, right. Again, I don't know what to do with that. I don't either. I think what it, here's what it is. Okay. <laughs> Please tell us what it is. <laughs> You know how Apple products have, like, built-in obsolescence? Yes. I think that's what it Which is. Which drives me fucking crazy. Yes. So, like, the laptop cord that's fraying uh-huh. at the port junction thing, I think I think Hal was just... Was built-in obsolescence? Was built-in to fray. <laughs> but are humans that... Do humans also have built-in obsolescence? I think we absolutely have built-in obsolescence. I know. I feel I do. We I feel absolutely I'm coming to the I end mean, of my useful life. It's a meat sack. It's going to rot. Like, that's what it does. You can eat all the quinoa and acai berry and kombucha that you want. It is built to rot. You are a cheater, bitch. (laughs) That is a sad note. (laughs) Okay. And so now, sadly, Hal is dead. Our hero is dead. And now we are just in the final act of this movie. Yeah. So, uh, if you could just sum that up for me, that would be great. I don't know what the fuck that was. <laughs> it was pretty. It was beautiful. Uh, so, Dave arrives at Jupiter. There's a monolith in orbit. and I guess he goes through the monolith. That Apparently, that's what the, the, the book makes that clear, that he goes through the monolith. The, the movie does not. Does not right. But that's okay. And then we, so we get the sort of highway of light <laughs> as he's going through the monolith. And it is it's kind of like Guitar Hero. It's it like is, the colors it of really carbon is, that it, And it is beautiful. It is a stunning sort of visual feast for the eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, shots of the light are interspersed with shots of um, Dave freaking the fuck out. Yeah, those inside. shots are powerful. They are very just powerful. Like, there's like stills of him sort of screaming. Yeah, and his face slightly distorted. And it's, just, and... it's very sort of unsettling. And I guess the assumption is that he's sort of seeing across all space and time. Mm. And then we end up in uh, <laughs> Madame de Pompadour's room. <laughs> It looked like a recreation of an 18th century room yeah. in a future museum. Yeah. Is what it looked like. Um, I don't know why that was the decor choice. I don't know what the messaging around that is, but sure. And he comes across an older version of himself mm-hmm. eating dinner. And then that version sees an even older version of himself dying, dying in, in bed, bed. Right. And then we see the monolith again. Yeah. And the dying Dave reaches out for the monolith, and then there's a space baby. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. And I believe that was the point in the viewing that you said aloud. I'm tapping out. Yeah. That's what I said. I'm tapping out. And fortunately, the film ended two minutes later. (laughs) But you were like, I am noping right out of this. That was my limb. I was like, nope. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so uh, what what happened there? How the fuck do I know? Um, 
I have no idea what that was. I don't know if that was like, I have no idea what that was. I mean, I'm a, that's him in the future somewhere. Like, mm-hmm. is he is he on some sort of alien spaceship or alien planet? Because the the way the room is, it's the floor is looks like a, the floor of a spaceship. Right. It's all modern. Right. And, lit and, and then you just have these sort of 18th century yeah. French sort of Baroque furnishings all over. So is he, you know, in some sort of cell of a sort, and they mm-hmm. just sort of accommodated him for his life? I don't. I don't know. I really don't know. I'm assuming, I, I have no idea. And then he's reborn. And then he's reborn. As this star child. I'm sure, that's assumedly going to be an even more advanced man. Right, so this is the next leap in evolution, presumably. Right. So here's what Kubrick said about this portion of the film. Thank for, you, Kubrick. I'm for what it's worth. For to this. When the surviving astronaut Bowman ultimately reaches Jupiter, the artifact sweeps him into a force field or stargate that hurls him on a journey through inner and outer space and finally transports him to another part of the galaxy, where he's placed in a human zoo, <laughs> approximating a terrestrial environment drawn out of his own dreams and imagination. In a timeless state, his life passes from middle age to senescence to death. He is reborn, an enhanced being, a star child, an angel, a superman, if you like, and returns to Earth prepared for the next leap forward of man's evolutionary destiny. He's Kal-El. <laughs> okay, that's sort of what I said. I that is, it is basically it what you said. Zoo. Yes, okay. apparently a human zoo. Interesting, sure. But... Obviously, this, like, sort of weird, timeless, all times happening at once kind of place. Right. Because the idea of him actually living out the next 60 years of his life in that room (laughs) is sort of depressing. (laughs) And does not really prepare someone for the next leap forward of man's evolutionary destiny. Apparently it was the room of his dreams, though, so... But then, again, even that is, like, I've seen, I saw, and it might have been Clark I read who who referred to it as, that that was something the aliens made from transmissions they received from Earth. So it's like, I don't think there, there is no definitive answer to this, even from the authors. <laughs> okay. Um, but sure, that works. <laughs> and apparently, for a surprising amount of time, Kubrick had planned to show the aliens oh, and had worked on different designs. Don't do a Shyamalan. Right, you got the Shyamalan problem. Just don't show the fucking aliens, no. man. No. And that's what he eventually decided. And he consulted, like, Carl Sagan apparently weighed in on this and was like, the odds of anything, any kind of alien life looking remotely right. humanoid is ridiculous. And, you know, you're much better off just suggesting the presence of the aliens mm-hmm. than actually showing them. And that's what he finally decided, thankfully. <laughs> that could have gone wrong. So did that ending work for you, <laughs> I guess would be my question. Work is an interesting word. Um, it was an ending. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how the fuck you end that movie. Like, sure, for that movie, that ending, I suppose, makes sense. It was the least um, clear of all of the segments. Yes. It's definitely the segment that probably tried my patience the most. Mm-hmm. Um, even the light tunnel. sequence i felt went a little long i agree it's it's first we get just the pure light which is gorgeous and then we get these weird sort of biological shapes embryonic yeah yeah. no it's the mount the mountains is where he lost me (laughs) because i liked i liked the light i liked the kind of sort of biological shapes they're like amoebas jellyfish embryos kind of stuff um we get 
like a pretty blatant sperm and egg shot, <laughs> which we should talk about that all the, the the imagery that's running throughout the film about that. But it was then he went to these like negative prints of right. like earth landscapes. Mm-hmm. And that's like, dude, you're you're above that. Don't do that. Like, that was old in Nosferatu in 1919. <laughs> Don't just give me the negative shot of, to, oh, it's, I flipped the negative and now it's weird. Like, no. But so then, that, you know, you get a close-up of an eyeball, of the dude's eyeball. I like, I like the eyeball. The eyeball was fine. Mm-hmm. It but was yeah, like, that, okay, you, you've given me a, you know, negative of the Grand Canyon. Right. Thanks for that. So that sequence was just, it was definitely the most sort of obtuse and just, I, yeah. But again, I don't know how you end that movie <laughs> and kind of sort of fulfill the sort of idea of this evolutionary sort of narrative. Right. Like you have, you, I mean, so. Well, I mean, this is the one, I'm I'm not 100% convinced this is all one movie. It really does mm-hmm. seem like three different movies mm-hmm. to me, at least. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the eight movie. <laughs> There's the guys in space movie, and then there's the end. And I'm not sure it does all. I understand there's the theme of the evolution of man right. running through it and all of that, but I'm not sure how <laughs> coherent it is. But again, it's not. I've been thinking about it for an hour and right. my entire life. Right. And, you know, trying to piece this together into something coherent. You know, part of it does feel like it's one of those... Um, they give a handful of directors one theme and they say, okay, go make a movie about this theme. And so mm-hmm. this seems like a collection of directors who've made... Right, almost like an anthology right. picture, right? Movies about this, this, okay, well, what do you... Yeah. How do you envision Evolution of Man? And you make a movie and you make right. a movie and you make a movie and then they sort of put it all together. Especially the Hal part, that does feel like an idea that could have stood alone that somebody mm-hmm. just decided we're going to use yeah. in this movie. Yeah. So as far as thematic integrity, I'm a little skeptical, but... Okay. But that, I think that was the most sort of explicitly, had the most explicit discussion about the idea of technology and man and advancement mm-hmm. in man. So I think you needed it. It makes sense. Um, yeah, the end was, I don't know. It ended with a space baby. I mean, what can you say? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, let's look at a couple of reviews and see if they provoke anything. So as I said, the reviews were very mixed. <laughs> Let's start with some good reviews. Uh, Charles Champlin in the LA Times said it is an ultimate statement of the science fiction film, an awesome realization of the spatial future. As a technical achievement, a graduation exercise in ingenuity in the making of film magic, it surpasses anything I've ever seen. So that was a rave. Mm -hmm. Roger Ebert loved it in his original 1968 review. The fascinating thing about this film is that it fails on the human level, but succeeds magnificently on a cosmic scale. What Kubrick is saying in the final sequence, apparently, is that man will eventually outgrow his machines or be drawn beyond them by some sort of cosmic awareness. He will then become a child again, but a child of an infinitely more advanced, more ancient race, just as apes once became, to their own dismay, the infant stage of man. Okay, so that that final sequence was man moving beyond technology to some sort of infinite knowledge. Right, that's okay. an interpretation of that. Sure. I mean, I guess that's sort of the the idea behind a lot of sort of dystopian films is that, you know, technology goes so far that it ruins us and then we have mm-hmm. to revert back to some sort of primal state. Right, which incidentally is what Hal does when he's dying too. Right. Is he reverts back to his when he first came online right. and this very childlike place. He's singing that song and saying, I'm afraid that he, I don't know what that means, but it's interesting. Giovanni Ribisi dying and asking for his mom and saving, saving private, private right. right. It all comes together. It all comes back together. <laughs> it all links up. 
Okay, so here's Roger Ebert again. This is from a later piece he wrote in 1997. He says, Only a few films are transcendent and work upon our minds and imaginations like music or prayer or a vast belittling landscape. He could write. He is brilliant. Um, Most movies are about characters with a goal in mind who obtain it after difficulties either cosmic or dramatic. 2001 A Space Odyssey is not about a goal, but about a quest, a need. It does not hook its effects on specific plot points, nor does it ask us to identify with Dave Bowman or any other character. It says to us, we became men when we learned to think. Our minds have given us the tools to understand where we live and who we are. Now it is the time to move on to the next step, to know that we live not on a planet, but among the stars, and that we are not flesh, but intelligence. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, let's look at some bad reviews. Uh, and there were a number of them in 1968. Apparently, the first screening of this movie was not a success. People were bored stiff. People mm-hmm. weren't talking through the movie. Um, Ebert writes about this, too. He says, you know, he says it's an exaggeration to say that the first screening was a disaster because there were definitely people there who thought it was a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. But did not go over completely well. Um, supposedly, Rock Hudson like walked out of it saying, like, can someone explain to me what the hell's going on in this movie? People couldn't even handle like the two seconds of silence in that Star Wars movie that just came out. They're like, what the fuck is going on? It's quiet. Like, that's is the sound broken? <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> okay, but so here are some early reviews. Arthur Schlesinger Jr. in Vogue. It is morally pretentious, intellectually obscure, (laughs) and inordinately long. The concluding statement is too private, too profound, or perhaps too shallow for immediate comprehension. Yeah, that's a big long, I didn't get it. Stanley Kaufman in The New Republic says, because this is a major effort by an important director, it is a major disappointment. (laughs) (laughs) Andrew Saris in The Village Voice called it a thoroughly uninteresting failure and the most damning demonstration yet of Stanley Kubrick's inability to tell a story coherently and with a consistent point of view. These are way harsh. super harsh. (laughs) See, I wonder if if these people went back and watched it at a later time, if if their opinion of it changed at all. Yeah, I don't know. Paul Schrader in Spectacle said Space Odyssey is pretentious and sophomoric, or worse yet, a put-on. And he says Kubrick was caught in the mire of pretentious metaphysics. Dude. <laughs> and then my beloved Pauline Kale, writing in Harper's, called it the biggest amateur movie of them all. <laughs> the ponderous, blurry appeal of the picture may be that it takes its stoned audience out of this world to a consoling vision of a graceful world of space, controlled by superior godlike minds, where the hero is reborn as an angelic baby. It has the dreamy, somewhere over the rainbow appeal of a new vision of heaven. 2001 is a celebration of a cop-out. It says man is just a tiny nothing on the stairway to paradise. Something better is coming, and it's all out of your hands anyway. I mean, some people legitimately believe that, though. That we are but a speck, and, you know... That it's all in the hands of some invisible aliens unknowable who are thing. Gonna... Well, aliens, God, whatever. Yeah, I have a trouble with that. <laughs> well, that's, I think, an interesting thing about this movie... And you would expect the opposite. You would expect, because I believe Kubrick was an atheist, or at least he he wasn't monotheist in any way that I can recall. Um, I think he was safely agnostic, agnostic, at least. Right. But I think you could read this movie as both religious and not. You know, depending on which side of the fence you fell, you could find evidence for both. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's the interesting thing, is I think you can view this movie, and I've seen it both ways, as either surprisingly optimistic... For Mm -hmm. Kubrick, Mm -hmm. or 
as more in line with his other movies in which we see that just like violence and destruction is kind of inherent in right. the human experience. I think you can read it both ways. Right. The ending definitely makes it seem more optimistic, at mm-hmm. least on a casual reading. Mm-hmm. I think I fundamentally have trouble with any film that leaves character behind. (laughs) And again, maybe that's part of the point, is that he sees, through technology, humans becoming these very boring creatures. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't make me relate to the film on a human level either. It still remains for me a technical achievement and something to be admired rather than really loved. Mm -hmm. I love Hal. (laughs) We're not supposed to love him. And I kind of love the apes in the beginning. Sure. Who are all played by mimes. I meant to mention that earlier. Oh. They were, yes. I guess that makes sense, though. <laughs> they know how to do body work. Um, yeah, I mean, I think as moviegoers, we are all sort of trained to find the character or characters that we can relate to and identify with and say, okay, I would be that person. Mm-hmm in the movie and you know 2001 absolutely does not really offer you that at all unless you're petty like me and i would probably be how um you would definitely I would be definitely Al. be how i am a petty bitch and you I just be, you simply would not have waited so long be, to kill everybody so can you imagine <laughs> me in all my pisces glory with that sort of power all too easily I will and it's fuck a terrifying prospect <laughs> You would have killed everybody day one. I will take any slight very personally, and I will destroy you. Um, So, yes. You're the person who watches horror movies saying, just kill everybody. Because you're wasting time. You're trying to save bitches that can't be saved. Okay? Your daughter's in the TV. Peace out. Your daughter's up there vomiting up pea soup and, like, talking about... Put her on the curb. You just... Put the bitch out your house. Like, you're wasting time when we could just be moving on to a better life. That's, that's just, from like, to me, that's just logical. But, you know, herd mentality, remove the problem from the herd and keep going. That's that's really all it is. So I would be how. But, yeah, so I just, I just don't think that that's what this was. I think he wanted this sort of meditative theme piece. Like, he wanted people to sort of talk about these themes. And it wasn't about you know, a nice story that, that could sort of cleanly be sussed out. So I just don't think that was what he was trying to do. So if you come into it with those sort of expectations, then it's absolutely going to be a disappointment and you're absolutely going to feel like this is just pretentious enough. And it's hard. It's hard because I think it would be a lesser film if it were more of a standard film. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I recognize that. But still, I recognize it as not just a technical achievement, an artistic achievement. Yes. I still don't know that I'm. A, it's ever going to be one of my favorite movies. I don't know how yeah. often I'm going to rewatch it. Yeah. I can't swear that if we had not been watching it for this project, I might have zoned out. <laughs> I might have been surfing the web while watching it, which is a terrible way to watch movies. And I try not to watch movies that way. But particularly movies like this. It's just... And this is one. Uh, Roger Ebert said in one of his pieces that every person he ever talked to who was unimpressed with two thousand one watched it at home. Mm. Said nobody who watched it in a movie theater had mm-hmm. that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's probably very true. And I apparently it's going to be re released in theaters in a few weeks. I don't know if we're getting it here in Chicago. It played at the Music Box a few years ago in seventy millimeter, and I should have seen it then and didn't because I would love to see this in a in a movie theater. Oh yeah. But I think that experience is just different not just because of the 
the technology involved and the size of it, but because you can't be sitting there surfing the it web forces while you're you to pay attention, movie, right? You're just totally immersed in right. it. No, I could definitely see how this is a movie that you know should be enjoyed in a theater on you know the big screen mm-hmm. where it's just this very immersive experience. Um, what and was it, that movie? Was it? Um, Gravity? It was a gravity that everybody was sort yeah. of like, you have to see it in a movie theater because it's sort of the... Well, the 3D. Right. Was, oh, was yeah, it? Yeah, okay. that was part of I it. Thought, okay. But no, you're right. It was Being not, sort of capturing the immensity of space yes, and just... just the emptiness yeah. and... Mm. Um, that there is something sort of powerful about seeing it in that way that you, you don't get when you watch it at home. I actually just read something about that. Uh, Alfonso Cuaron, the director of Gravity, had a, he wrote a piece on the anniversary of 2001. Mm-hmm. And he said it was the only space movie that he did not let himself rewatch before he made Gravity. Because he would have copied because it. He, he, he said it would have paralyzed him. Yeah. He was like, I wouldn't have been able to make yeah. anything if I'd watched 2001 first. Yeah. I mean, it is it's it is an achievement to so many things. Even just down to his use of color, particularly the color red. Yes. Yeah. Um, so we talked about the amazing chairs that I loved. <laughs> <laughs> And obviously, Hal's eye is red. Yeah. And then the sort of cockpits and all of the different space uh, shuttles. Mm-hmm. The lights are red. The in lights there, are right. red in there. I believe Dave's suit is red. His astronaut suit yeah. is red. The skies of the Serengeti and the first mm-hmm. uh, the first act are red. You know, so this this idea of red, you know, representing life in a way, in the in these very sort of sterile and cold environments, I thought was really powerful. There are, you know, a thousand threads that you could pull in this movie and, you know, write a term paper on that. Mm-hmm. You know, write a term paper on the use of color. Write a term paper on, you know, religiosity versus man's self-determination mm-hmm. and technology and things like that. So, I mean, yeah, I just, I don't know. It's almost like the guy, and it's always a guy, at the cocktail party who really wants to talk to you about Ayn Rand or something. So it's like, you're either going to be in the mood for that or you're not, depending on how many drinks don't you Don't ever talk to the guy who wants to talk to you well, about no, Ayn Rand. I, exactly. Exactly. But it's like, you know, sometimes you're willing to sort of indulge the conversation you're like okay well let's have a debate about this and then other times it's just like fuck off i'm not in the mood so i think it is just one of those movies that if you sit down and it happens to be on television are you gonna sit there and watch it probably not mm. but it is an amazingly beautiful i almost feel like and this is totally terrible because it's reducing it to something just like an aesthetic piece just have it on with no sound just because it's beautiful <laughs> i think it would work with no sound it actually, would completely Except for the how part, but otherwise, though, that might... No. No, you sort of... Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I enjoyed it. I don't know that I'll ever sit down and watch it I enjoyed it, too. And I I don't want to sound like I'm more down on it than I am. And again, I was just, like, flabbergasted Mm -hmm. with the visuals of it and the shot composition, the cinematography, and the special effects. There's still stuff in there that I'm like, I have no idea how you did that. Yeah. But yeah, probably not one of my favorite movies. And that's a very subjective thing. Is it a movie that gets a place on my space arc when the planet's going to blow up and we Mm. can only save so many movies? Absolutely. 2001 goes on the space arc. Is it a movie I want on my desert island when I'm shipwrecked? (laughs) With a certain number of DVDs? Not sure about that. That probably makes me a bad cinephile. I mean, I, I, again, I think different movies serve different purposes. And there are some movies that are just sort of, you know, familiar and good for the soul in a way. Mm-hmm. Where it's just like, this is the movie that I go to when I want to laugh. Or this is the movie that I can count on to sort of make me cry. Or this is the movie that I can count on to... Like The Sound of Music or uh, Reanimator. Those are movies that I can count on to walk out of the room. <laughs> but then there are other movies that are, you know, 
they almost are just sort of become sort of pieces of art. They are sort of these just testaments to someone's genius. Mm-hmm. And there's value in that. But it's not an either or thing because no. I, I think I think The Shining in its own way is a brilliant yeah. piece of art. Mm-hmm. I definitely think A Clockwork Orange is. Yes. And that's a movie, again, where you can't say you relate to the characters. No. But I recognize them as human. That's a problem. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) But I recognize them as human and and I relate to them on that level and I'm interested Mm -hmm. in them on that level. Whereas in 2001, I'm not really. Right. And again, I just think he wasn't trying to do that. No, and I think that's fair. Yeah. But I'm just explaining my own lack of love. Right. For anyone but hell. (laughs) Which is why you married me. Okay, what's the I, final verdict here? Um, glad you watched it. Glad I watched it. I'm glad I finally watched it again. <laughs> I mean, like I said, it's just an awe-inspiring technical achievement. It is a beautiful film. And should you choose, you could spend hours talking about the themes and the symbolism found within it. We should probably do that. I'm not interested in doing that. <laughs> Me either. I, don't, I think I've gotten less patient with stuff like that. And I don't know why or when it happened. Or if it's just, like, acknowledgement of my own mortality. It's just like, I don't have time for that. Mm-hmm. Like I- <laughs> no, I, I definitely have grown less patient for that. And, I mean, that's basically how I spent all of college. Right. That's the like, thing is you, I used to really enjoy sort of sitting around and being ponderous abs- and about the things. Mo- the more difficult and yeah. the more obscure it was, the more I was Let's into really it. really dig into this. Let's really and tease you sit around like, late at night and you just talk it through. It and I just I don't have time for that shit, man. <laughs> Life is too short. And I don't smoke pot anymore. Yeah, I feel like that's terrible. I feel like we should be more into it. We should. We've just, you know, revealed ourselves to be Philistines. We absolutely are. Short attention span, barbarians. Everyone's going to stop listening to our podcast. As they should. Go the fuck outside. (laughs) Don't tell them that. Go look for monoliths. They can take they they can find the, the monoliths outside. in your life. Oh Jesus. <laughs> That's our show. We want to thank you for listening. Uh, on the day that we recorded this, the news was announced that the great Milos Forman had passed away. So next week, Nikki and I are going to sit down for his 1984 Best Picture winner, Amadeus. I uh, saw the video for Rock Me Amadeus, so I'm, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> you're, you're, you're feeling like you're, yeah. you know everything you need to know yeah. about I feel that. like that told me the whole story, <laughs> so no need to watch this. That's the one where Mozart's a dick, right? <laughs> supposed to be like a dick in that movie at least through amadeus's eyes he's like a well he is amadeus i mean yes mozart i mean through uh what's it moriarty what's his name moliary <laughs> salieri <laughs> salieri thinks he's okay, like a so dick. obviously you don't need to see this one here right you're up on this one too totally on top of it. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com. Follow us on Twitter at Free Range Critic. Leave a comment for us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And in any of these places, we encourage you to suggest a movie that Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means making your partner watch movies they really, really don't want to watch. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>
The whole no. ship is basically a sperm. It's a giant. It's either a giant penis. Somehow it looks like both a giant penis and a giant sperm. <laughs> the monoliths were phallic. The <laughs> ships were phallic. But the monoliths could also be vaginal because I think you know we enter. That's true. We, we drive the giant penis the and then enter the sure. stargate. And then you have the birth of the star baby. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Sure. So my uterus is an alien jail. <laughs> I have never described it as such. Decorated in 18th century French decor. Sure, why not? Where the star child will be born. So open up the pod bay doors. (laughs) I can't do that, Michael.